Oh God, in the quiet of that reverie, we listen for You. Of all new beginnings, we need You now. As we set out together on this new voyage, You lead us. Through Holy Scripture, teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of dying? My freshman year, as it turns out, second semester. On a rain-slickin' curve, two beautiful young college girls spun out of control and were killed instantly. I knew them. One of them was sitting the next row over and to the back of the communications class we were taking together. I didn't know him that well, but that very night, when I crawled into bed, I am telling you what, I went into an emotional tailspin. I tossed and turned in that dormitory bunk bed, panicked, feeling as if Death's cold, clammy hand was groping in the darkness trying to find me next. And I suddenly found myself petrified, petrified over death. I was sure I would be the next victim on that campus. I should have gone and talked to somebody. I should have talked to the dean. I should have talked to some counselor at the college. But I was too chicken to admit that I was scared of death. You afraid of death? Maybe not. Most of us are kind of like Woody Allen. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But one of these days it is going to happen for Woody, for you, and for me. And when death comes to us, what will it feel like? Do you suppose we'll have a warning like, wow, I, I, I think I'm going to die in just the next few moments? Or will death stealthily grab us from behind? And when death comes, what next? Believing as I do that we all, not like a panicky freshman, I understand that, but we all nurse a secret fear of death. Believing that. I think the time is right for you and I, for us, to undertake By the way, I love that word, undertake. 
Because that will make us undertakers, which is a great death word. It is time for us to undertake a journey. A candid and frank exploration of this thing called death. We'll do it. Come on, I promise you. We'll do it from a safe and septic distance. Kind of like the pathologist in that CSI morgue. We're not dealing with my own death here. We're dealing with somebody else's death. We'll deal with it that way. But we need to take a look. It's a tiny little mini-series that we begin today, just three parts long. We'll call the series The Truth About Death. Today will be The Forked Tongue Beast. Next week will be The Unmade Bed. And then the third week will be The Midnight Blitz. Because could it be true that if we can expose the truth about death, we can defang death of its fear? So let's, let's, let's just plunge into this thing. I mean, come on, tell me, how in the world, how in the world do we get into this death thing anyway? I mean, look, if God, if there is a God, and I believe there is, and if He is a loving and compassionate God, and I also believe that He's that too, then why, in the name of God and all that is good, would he invent something so wretched and treacherous as death? Oh, well, maybe, maybe he didn't invent it. Maybe death didn't get invented by anybody. Maybe it's as some people say, you know, it's just been here. You evolve, you live, you die. You might as well learn to embrace it. It's, it's, it's kind of the way of life in a random universe like ours. Is that it? Or could it be? It, it makes you wonder. Could it be that the very fact we numinously fear this mortal foe, could it be that that numinous fear, in fact, is proof enough we've been made not to succumb to death in the beginning. Open your Bible with me, please, to that story in the beginning. We've got, we got to find the answers, guys. Come on. Open your Bible with me, please, to a story long, long ago and far, far away. Five days of creation on this primordial, pristine planet are over. Five are gone. It's day six. Already. Already. The planet is bursting at its green seams. The ecosystem alive with every imaginable life form from orchids to orcas to ostriches to orangutans. Wow, what a place. But then when the Creator comes to His masterful, crowning act of creation. Suddenly, the account bursts with detail. Let's go to that. Genesis chapter 2. Crowning act of the Creator. Genesis chapter 2. By the way, if you didn't bring your Bible, you've got to grab the pew Bible right in front of you. It's waiting to be picked up. Just hoping you'll pick it up. Genesis chapter 2. Be page 1 in your pew Bible. Let's take a look at this. Genesis 2. By the way, pew Bible... Pulpit Bible, same translation today, the New King James Version. Genesis chapter 2. Here comes the detail. Verse 7, Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God 
Hit the pause button right there. I need to remind you, just in case you didn't know or have forgotten, that according to the New Testament, John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, the Lord God, the divine player, in the first three chapters of Genesis, that divine player is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, I have no idea what the pre-incarnate Christ looked like. I know what Jesus looks like. Because I've looked at that picture as you have for a long time. So we've got that face in our minds. Well, this is the face of the same being. Same one. The Lord God, the pre-incarnate Christ. And the Lord God formed. And by the way, the Hebrew word for formed is what a potter does with a hunk of clay. Just takes that clay, forms. And the Lord God formed man. By the way, as well, in the Hebrew, Adam. Not a proper name. It's a name. It's the generic name for humanity. Adam. And the Lord God formed Adam, man, out of the dust of the Adama, Hebrew for ground. You see the connection? Because he came out of the ground. His name even sounds like ground. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Hey, do you remember when you were in first grade and your teacher announced today, boys and girls, this is our class in the afternoon. All right, boys and girls, today I'm going to put something special in your hands and I want you to make for me a face. You make your own face, please. And then she handed out red lumps and blue lumps and green lumps and yellow lumps of clay. You remember that? Your teacher said, all right, work this clay. All right, make it into a face. And so you took that lump and you rounded it into this kind of cockamamie shaped head. You took a little bit out of the back of the head and you, 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 you squiggled into this long pointy nose. You took the sides of the head and you pulled it out so the ears are cauliflower. You punched in two holes, gouged two holes for the eyes and dropped in two little clay balls. And then you pencil pricked that smile and you held it up to your teacher. And she told you it was the most beautiful face she had ever seen. And we were all thinking to ourselves, I am sure glad he was not my creator. <laughs> Genesis 2, 7, and the Lord God... For man of the dust of the ground and breathe into his nostrils. Breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Let's hit the pause button again for one more moment. We need to note the vital ingredients that when they're combined turn a human being into a living being. We've got to get these down. Grab your, grab your study guide and your worship bulletin today. Blow the snow off of it. Take that study guide out. And by the way, if you don't have a study guide, you've got to get this one. There are some equations that we're going to share with you that you've got to have. So hold your hand up. Our friendly ushers will be coming your way up in the balcony in the overflow right here. Just hold your hand up and say, I need one of those study guides. And while we're getting those out here, I want to welcome those of you who are watching on television or listening on the radio. We're delighted you're here. You can get this same series. Let me put it on the screen for you. This is the series, The Truth About Death. A little three-part mini-series. Go to our website, please, www.pmchurch.tv, and you're looking for today's teaching, The Forked Tongue Beast. That's today's teaching. And when it says study guide right beside that title, you click on, you will have the same study guide we have, and you can plunge into this with us. Glad you're here, everybody. All right, let's go. we got to go. Genesis 2, verse 7. Fill it out, please. Dust of the ground. Okay, what are the ingredients that make a human being a living being? Dust of the ground plus breath of life equals living soul. Dust of the ground plus breath of life equals living soul. We just saw it in this verse. We're not adding anything. That's, those are the two ingredients that make 
A living being. The Creator stoops over this statue. I mean, you try to imagine it in your heart. This is they're just this clay statue. Perfect man, but lifeless. And the Creator, the pre-incarnate Christ, puts His mouth over that clay, those clay nostrils and He breathes in the animating life that belongs only to God. And as He does, suddenly those huge eyes begin to flutter and that massive chest goes... And Adam becomes a living being. In fact, here's an easy way to remember the formula. Jot it down. Body plus breath equals being. All right? Body plus breath equals being. So now, what does God do? Drop down to verse 15. And then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and he put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And verse 16, the Lord God commanded the, saying, commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I want you to imagine in your, in your mind, Adam is listening to his creator and friend give these instructions. Hey, time, time, time out, please. My Lord and dear divine friend, I, I have to ask you a question. You said that if the day that I eat of it, I'm going to die. What does that mean? What do you mean, die? You think about it. There has been no death. There has been no death on this primordial planet. Zero. Nobody in the universe has seen death. What do you say will happen? I will die? The Creator's warning in verse 17 is clear. That whatever death is, and right now we don't know what it is, but whatever death is, it would only ensue should the man or woman choose to reject the Creator as Lord. Unless the humans choose to disobey the Creator, there will never be death on this planet. Which being interpreted means that any theory of origin that necessitates death as a method of the Creator's creating or evolving life forms of this planet is in direct contradiction to the utterly clear and plain teaching of Scripture. In fact, would you write this down, please? Genesis 2.17 makes clear that death is the consequence of human rebellion, not the modus operandi of human evolution. Keep writing. The Creator did not need long ages of death cycles in order to create our life cycle. Romans 6.23, keep scribbling. For the wages of sin... Hey, tell me, what are the wages of sin? Say it to me. Death. The wages of sin is death, i.e., no sin, no death. Whatever death is, it is the fruit of sin and rebellion against God. No wonder the serpent went with bared fangs after the truth about death. Chapter 3. Verse 1, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? Hit the pause button again. Clearly, clearly, ladies and gentlemen, clearly, the serpent creature has been co-opted by an intelligent life form that is using the serpent as a medium for his own. Nefarious purpose. 
And who's that intelligent life form? The Bible's, the Bible's last book confirms this story in the Bible's first book. I want to look at that last book. In fact, I want you to go there. Keep your finger right here because we're coming immediately back. But you need to see this for yourself in your own Bible. Revelation, the Bible's last book, chapter 12. I want you to see this. Revelation 12, verse 7. All right, is there a page number here? Page number 829. All right, Revelation 12, verse 7. And war. This is the most inexplicable line in all of Holy Scripture. How you get war in the home and family of God. Perfect parents. You know, I have parents come to me heartbroken. What happened to my daughter? What happened to my child? I had two parents in my office this very week. This very week. With tears. I tell parents, listen, don't be too hard on yourself. I've been there and done that. And number two, you can be the most perfect parent in the universe. And you can have your family fall apart. So... Take it easy on yourself. God, even God, couldn't stop the war. Not if you love. Not if you give people free choice. You can shoot them if they disobey, but if you give them free choice, it's a whole other ballgame. And love always gives free choices, doesn't it? Or it's not love. It's rape. And war. By the way, the Greek word for war, polemos. From whence comes our word polemics. It's a war of ideologies. It's a war of ideas. a war of philosophies. That's the war. They're not boxing each other. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with a dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Verse 8, but they, the dragon, and his angels did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out. You can't leave a rebel in the house forever. He'll destroy everything. So the great dragon was cast out. Verse 9, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Write it down, ladies and gentlemen. The serpent of Genesis is none other than the devil. Write it in. None other than the devil or Satan, the fallen Lucifer of heaven. That's who that is. That's who he is. Once upon a time, there was a civil war in the house of God. And Lucifer was finally cast out of paradise. And lo, he came to Eden. Go back where your finger was. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Please, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That, by the way, that is the most ludicrous line you could possibly think of, but that's the whole point why he spoke it. I mean, he's making a, it's just, it's, it's ludicrous. Hey, hey girl, you, come here. Did God tell you you can't eat of any of these trees? How dumb. All he wants, whenever Lucifer comes to you, all he wants is for you to engage in a little bit of friendly conversation. Trust me, it's never friendly and you'll never win. Because if your conscience is saying, don't, 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 and there's another voice in you saying, do, 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 the voice that's saying do, if you argue with that voice, he sets you up for the kill. Just like that. You walk away. You just walk away. Get out of that car. Walk away from that party. Get out of that place. Just get out. 
If your mind is God's conscience to you saying, don't, don't, don't. Don't you argue. Just leave. Well, it worked. Hook, line, and sinker. She bit the bait. And the woman said, hey, wait hey, wait a minute. What are you talking about? Verse 2. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. You got it wrong, buddy. But of the fruit, verse 3, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, coincidentally, it's this very tree that you're coiled in. But of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Would you write it down, please? Those words, you will not surely die in the English are the strongest wording Hebrew is capable of. Literally, the Hebrew reads, dying, you will not die. I.e., you will positively, I promise you positively, you will not die. The serpent's language is as forceful as he can possibly make it. Take my word, lady. Take my word. Read my lips. I promise you, you will not die. That's what the Hebrew is telling us. It is a blatant contradiction of God's warning to Adam and Eve, proving that the serpent's tongue has been forked from the beginning. Jesus, by the way, the the Creator, when He became incarnated into our midst, matched the serpent's strong language with a bit of strong language back at you. Of his own. Jot it down. This is from John chapter 8, 44. And I love it in the NIV. Watch this. Fill it in. Jesus said the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth. For there is no truth. No truth. No truth in him. When he lies, isn't this something? He speaks his native language. That's all he knows what to do. Is lie. Oh, he'll mix the truth in. He'll have a little bit of the truth in to catch you off guard. But when he speaks, lying is his native language. And then fill this in. For he is a liar and the father of lies. End quote. He's a liar and the father of lies. And what did he say to the human race? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. I just, here's what I say to you. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Because she did die. And so did he. And so will you. And so will I. Verse 6. So when the woman saw, always going at us through our eyes. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes, And a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And what follows, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the most heartbreaking, heart-to-heart conversations in all of Scripture. And at the very end of it, God turns to Adam and answers the unspoken but now open question What happens when I die? He never answered it in chapter 2. Now, 
has to come the answer. The devil lied about death. Listen to God tell the truth about death. Verse 17. Then to Adam, the pre-incarnate Christ, said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Let me tell you something, Adam. Here's the planet you now get with Lucifer as your Lord. You went to the voting booth. You went to that tree. You pulled the lever. We'd rather have Lucifer than me. All right. Here's what you get now. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall now bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Verse 19. And in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you shall return. What is death? God is absolutely clear. Death is the great reversal of creation. That's what death is. Cutting us off from the source of life because of our choice. Would you jot it down, please? Death is to return to the ground. Death is to return to the ground for dust you are... And to dust you shall return, end quote. Guess what? Those are the words we intone at the gravesite. Those of us that join you there. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. That's where it came from. The Creator's definition of death. You remember that uh, equation we put on the screen a moment ago? Hey, guys, let's put the screen, uh, let's put that equation, please, back up on the screen. You remember this. Body plus breath equals being. So, if death is the great reversal of creation, the equation for death would go something like this. Fill it in. Body, back to dust, minus breath, back to God, equals death. That's it. And when our bodies turn back to dust and our breath returns to God, is there anything left over? Is there something that goes on living? Anything that goes on existing? Very good question. Let's illustrate it by building a box together. I'll put a, I'll put a stack of boards right here. stack of boards right here. And a pile of nails right here. Can you see it? You have to squint to see it. But stack of boards right here. Pile of nails. Every carpenter knows there is a formula for building a box, stack of boards, pile of nails. Let's put the formula on the screen, please. Boards plus nails equals box. If you memorize that formula, you'll be able to build boxes till you die. Boards plus nails equals box. Now, Mr. Carpenter, yo, what's the formula for taking a box apart? It's very simple. I'll put it on the screen for you. Jot it down. Boards minus nails equals... No, go ahead and fill it in. Go ahead, fill it in. Boards minus nails equals... Huh? Equals... No, let's put three question marks up there. You're not sure. I'm looking in your faces. You're not sure. Hey, listen. Hey, listen, people. What do you have when you take the boards and the nails of a box apart? What do you have? What do you have? In fact, let's do it this way. There's a little Q&A in your study guide. Let's put the Q up on the screen. When you take the boards and nails apart, where does the box go? Hmm? Does it go? Do, do boxes that have been 
uh, disassembled, hover up in the corner of rooms right up there near the ceiling? Where do boxes go? Do they go to a box heaven and wait? Huh? You know the answer. Write it down, please. The answer, it simply ceases to exist. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is precisely God's point about death in Genesis 3. When you take a human being apart, it simply ceases to exist. In fact, let's write it in a little shorter formula for you. Body minus breath equals death slash ceasing to exist. Death is a great reversal of creation. And God is looking into the face the pre-incarnate Christ looking into the face, faces of Adam and Eve. And you can almost hear him say, it, I, I am so heartbroken for you. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. The devil lied to you. You are going to die now. And then the writer of Genesis, to make sure that we knew God's definition in Genesis 3 is the correct definition about death. That we might know the truth of the serpent's lie. Just turn a page. Just turn your page just like this to Genesis 5. Drop down to verse 5. Read this. Genesis 5, 5, it's speaking of Adam. And so, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And read the next words to me. And he died. And he died. The devil told him he wouldn't. The Bible tells us he did. And he died. What happened when Adam died? Death reversed creation. That's how the Bible defines death. In fact, put this on the screen, but you have it there in your study guide. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. Fill it in. Then at death. Here's how the Bible defines death. Then at death, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit... Now, the, the Hebrew word there is ruach, and it can be translated breath, so you need to put that in there. And the Spirit, or breath, will return to God who gave it. Ah, I told you, Dwight. I told you. There is something intelligent that goes back to God when we die, and it's that Spirit. Oh, my friend, be very, be very cautious about jumping so quickly to that conclusion. You want to know what that spirit is? Let's go, let's take, you know, we have to let the Bible interpret itself. It's not your opinion and mine. Let's let the Bible interpret itself. Job 27, verse 3. Take a look at this. It's in your study guide. All the, Job speaking. All the while my breath is in me and the spirit, ruach, right in the word, breath, and the spirit of God is where? Is where? Is in my nostrils. Now, either we conclude, ladies and gentlemen, that our intelligent spirit lives in our nostrils, which doesn't seem very intelligent to me at all. Or we have to conclude and recognize that when Ecclesiastes 12.7 describes death, it is the great reversal of creation in Genesis 2.7. It means that our bodies go back to dust and our breath of life returns to the life giver. You don't have your intelligent spirit living up your nose. But I thought there was some, some kind, of, kind of a soul thing. You know, what about the soul, this immortal soul? Oh. 
It comes as a rude shock to anyone who carefully studies the Bible teaching on death to discover that the Bible never speaks of an immortal soul. Would you jot this down in your study guide, please? In fact, over 1,700 times the words soul and spirit are used in the Bible and not once is the adjective immortal attached to them. Never. In fact, according to the Bible, immortality... Immortality belongs to only one being in the universe. And you have the text there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only potentate, that would be Almighty God Himself, who alone, would you write that down please? Alone. A-L-O-N-E. Alone in the universe. One being has immortality. You say, oh come on Dwight, the angels are immortal. No, they're not. The angels, look it. If the angels were immortal, we'd have Lucifer forever and ever. The angels are not immortal. They borrow life from the life giver. There's only one being in this universe, ladies and gentlemen. Never forget it. There's only one being in the universe who is immortal, and that is Almighty God Himself. There's nothing inside of you that is immortal. There's nothing inside of me. In fact, that word immortality, anathasia. That word is used only twice in the New Testament. It's in your study guide. Fill this in, please. The good news is, the good news is that God, the only one who has immortality, one day, hold on now, one day, He's going to give that immortality to you and me. Watch this. The Greek word, Athanasia, is used in two places in the New Testament. Here, in 1 Timothy 6, and in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 and 54, where it describes the immortality bestowed upon God's friends. Now, this is a key point. When? At the resurrection, write it in, at the second coming of Jesus, when, as Paul scribbles it there, this mortal must put on immortality. You have no immortality in you now. That immortality will come as a gift only when Christ returns and there's a resurrection. Those who are dead will receive it. Those who are his friends and alive, boom, in the twinkling of an eye. You got it too. You got it. You're going to live forever now. Because you got it from the only source in the universe. Yes, death is the abrupt, oftentimes unexpected, complete cessation of physical life and mental existence. Gone! Where'd he go? It's gone. Where'd the box go? It's gone. It's gone. But hallelujah, death is not the last word about life. Jesus is. There's one text we skipped over. I want you to see it. Genesis 3. Look at verse 15. Skip right over it. The Creator's looking straight into the snake eyes of that serpent. He's talking to Lucifer. You know who he's talking to. Genesis 3, verse 15. And I, the Creator says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. I like the way uh, Eugene Peterson renders this. I am declaring war between you and the woman. I like the way the New Living Translation renders this. From now on, you and the woman will be enemies. I need you to be reminded this morning that you have been declared to be an enemy of Lucifer, not his friend. You are his enemy. It has been placed in you by your Creator to be at war with the dragon. Never settle for peace with the dragon. Don't you ever sue for peace. You're supposed to be at war. Oh, great, Dwight. He's going to hurt me. Don't you worry about that. Don't you worry, because there's the second half of this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her, capital S seed. Somebody's going to come through the line of the human race. 
Who's that somebody? It's the Messiah. What's he going to do? And he shall bruise... Hey, serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I have a quiz question for you. You know, they're, they're always uh, re-blacktopping the highways here in Bering Springs, whether we need it or not. And so you've seen these big steamrollers out there. That's just these huge steamrollers. Here's a quiz question for you. You'll have to ponder it for a minute. Which would you rather have the steamroller roll over? Your heel or your head? Huh? Which would you rather have? You say, that's a no-brainer, Dwight. You got it. That's the point here. He's coming. You will crush his heel. Oh, ooh, you will crush his heel. But he will steamroll your head. He will crush your head. You lose. Isn't that something? Jot it down. The fork-tongued beast is, hallelujah, defeated. In the Calvary, when Jesus cried out, it is finished. The head of our mortal enemy was crushed. His doom was made certain. And get this, when Christ arose alive from the grave, He shook the keys in the face of the panicked serpent. And He said, I am alive. I was dead. I am now alive forevermore. And listen to this. I have the keys to death and the grave. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you say? Amen and amen. That's why I love this single line near the end of the Bible. I'll end with this. Fill it in, please. First John chapter 5, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Dwight, what's the point of this teaching? Jot it down. If you will be a friend of Jesus, you never will be afraid of death. That's it. You don't have to live with the fear of death. You don't have to be panicked like that college freshman I was telling you about. You don't have to be afraid. If you'll be a friend of Jesus, you will never have to be afraid of death. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The head's been crushed. Fear not. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He who has the Son has life. She who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I want to end with a story about the day I saw my friend Norm Truby die. I shall never forget that moment as long as I live. The last time I saw Norm before conducting his funeral, he was hooked up to a life support system. It was only supposed to be a fairly routine open heart surgery. Norm was an accountant for the university. You know, I mean, if open heart surgeries can ever be routine. I understand that. But the surgeon ran into grave complications. And when Norm came out of surgery, he never regained consciousness. His wife Alice and their three children kept up this vigil by his ICU bedside up the road. And then that numbing moment came. And the doctors gathered them and informed them that their husband and father had no brain wave activity at all. He is just being kept alive by this respirator. My phone rang. 
On the other end of it, Alice, Alice's brave voice asking if I would come back down to the hospital. The doctors had some bad news and the family needed to, needed to make a tough decision. I hurried back down to the hospital, gathered with the family. Hours went by. They could not bring themselves to the inevitable decision. But finally, after much prayer, they called the doctors back and informed the physicians that they would accept medical counsel and they would disconnect the life support system. It was one of the most tender and sacred moments I've ever had the privilege of being a part of. Family gathered about Norm's bed there behind the curtain in the ICU. One by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they expressed their goodbyes. And then, they reached out to clasp hands and they drew me into that circle. And they began to sing. You're not going to believe this. They began to sing of their trusting faith in the Savior. The nurses gathered around. A white-clad technician walked into the room. He walked into the corner where the respirator was. He stooped down. And he turned it off. But hope sprang. And Norm's chest on its own kept moving. But it was only for a handful of breaths. Autonomic response. And finally, death entered that room. How could a family around a loved one so precious possibly be singing as he's dying? I'll tell you why. Because the people who knew him best knew that Norm trusted the Savior, and knew that one day when Jesus comes, life, immortal life, would be given to Him. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son of God has not life. So what do you have? Hmm? What do you have? 